Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Lyle Goldstein. He is research professor and founding director of the China Maritime Studies Institute at the U.S. Naval War College. Lyle Goldstein, welcome to Pushback. Aaron, thanks. It's it's so great to be here. I'm a huge fan of uh, Gray Zone and Pushback, so it's it's great to be on. Um, let me say right at the outset, though, uh, you know, I I um, want to say these are my own opinions and don't reflect in any way the official assessments of the uh, U.S. Navy or any agency of the U.S. government. Well, it's great to have you on. You study very closely China and Russia. So I wanted to have you on to talk about how Biden is approaching both of these countries in his first few months in office and how Biden's stance might be bringing China and Russia closer together. Let's start with China. What do you make so far of how China is approaching the U.S. and and vice versa. You had recently some acrimony on display at that meeting in Alaska where Tony Blinken made accusations against China. China responded with accusations against the U.S., both chiding each other for human rights abuses and seemingly affronting global norms and international law. So what do you make so far of how China and the U.S. are approaching each other? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm I'm rather disappointed to be honest. Uh, I was hoping uh, that we might see some kind of reset on China policy. I mean, uh, U.S.-China relations have um, been in a terrible place, a very dark place, and I've been extremely concerned um, through the, uh, especially through the final years of the Trump administration. Uh, I, you know. I've been looking at China for, uh, well, two and a half decades, and, and really, I, I didn't think it could get much worse. Um, so was hoping for a rapid turnaround, a return to kind of pragmatic uh, diplomacy where we try to actually get some things done. Uh, you know, so many global issues need to be uh, worked on by both China and the U.S., um, not just working in parallel, but, but collaboratively collaboratively. Anyway, I was disappointed by Alaska. I thought the approach was very confrontational and uh, both sides immediately pulled into this kind of ideological, uh, you know, uh, vitriolic kind of uh, discussion, which just, uh, you know, continues to poison the atmosphere. I mean, it's not shocking. If you look at the mood in DC and also in Beijing, it's it's a very dark kind of mood. I, I don't think the Chinese uh, were, were um, how to put it, I, I don't think they ever thought that a major reset was in the works. Uh, but um, I, I now I have understood that once the cameras were turned off, which is interesting, they, they do seem to have gotten down to business. So that's a little bit encouraging and maybe suggest that uh, both both sides are kind of playing to an audience at home. But it, actually, in fact, they, there is a will to cooperate on both sides. So you know, I, if one wants to take a little bit of hope out of Alaska, that's what I would take. But I, you know, how to put it, I, I've never subscribed to the idea that you could um, that you could kind of um, draw a circle around areas of tension and put those aside and then get to work. Um, in my view, you know, we have to be committed to a cooperative relationship with China. It's really hard. I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, we probably don't like about China. And there's a lot of things they don't like about us, but we both have to kind of commit to uh, working together. And that is uh, 
just getting harder and harder, it seems, unfortunately. What are the major flashpoints right now to you between the U.S. and China? Right. And I, you know, it, it used to be we would kind of go through, you know, a, a whole uh, list of minor issues. Um, and, and, you know, we would say the chance of actually a military conflict is very, very, very low. And, and it has been that way for, for decades, really, uh, which is good. Uh, reflecting the maturity on on both sides, uh, and realization that war would be a um, you know a, a terrible outcome, uh, catastrophic probably. Um, but um, today, the we have flashpoints um, more than one that that actually could lead to war, and uh, Taiwan is first among them. I mean. You know, uh, Hollywood couldn't ask for a better script for the apocalypse. I mean, this is just exceedingly dangerous. And both sides are maneuvering right at this moment to, um, you know, in ways that that could uh, this could suddenly spark into into a, a war, not just a, not an Iraq or Afghanistan type war, uh, but a real a real war <laughs> where tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or more are killed. And that could include uh, nuclear use of nuclear weapons, uh, for sure. So this is exceedingly dangerous. Now, that's not the only dangerous, you know, flashpoint. There's also the South China Sea, which is, I would say, uh, also very dangerous. Not, not, I would say not on par with Taiwan. Uh, the North Korea situation is also dangerous. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, President Kim has just launched uh, some new ballistic missiles, I think, within the last uh, 24 hours. But we, um, you know, it, it wouldn't take much to get us back to the brink there. And, and by the way, you know, there's a decent probability if there were a war on the Korean Peninsula that guess what, you know, back to 1950, uh, China's on one side and we're on the other. So uh, cannot rule out a, a U.S.-China clash in those circumstances either. But Taiwan, by far, the most dangerous. Sino-Indian tensions also could draw in the United States and could lead to a war as well. But I am most concerned about those. Now, there's a whole list of other issues that we are confronting China on, you know, if you will, across the board. Um, you know, we could just talk about economic flashpoints, too. But those are the ones that keep me up at night, particularly Taiwan. What are we not hearing when it comes to the real story behind the U.S. role in Taiwan and how that continues to be a flashpoint between the U.S. and China? Yeah, it. I mean... I would share with listeners that Taiwan has always been a huge um, issue in the relationship. Um, it has gone, you know, somewhat more quiet occasionally. Um, and by the way, you know, it wasn't that long ago I was uh, somewhat optimistic on the Taiwan situation. It seemed to be, as it were, settling itself. Uh, you know, what what is essentially a a kind of a simmering civil war that never ended. Uh, I like to call it a family quarrel. Yes. Um, and um, there were some reasonably good signs. Uh, at one point, uh, the leader of Taiwan, uh, Maing Zhou, met with Xi Jinping in, in Singapore in 2015. That wasn't that long ago, and they had a good discussion. Okay. So, I mean, you know, there are a lot of diplomatic avenues that can take us away from this. But at this point, um, you know, many um, American leaders, unfortunately, seem to have come to the decision that uh, they have to get involved in this family quarrel. Uh, I don't share that view. I think that's a huge mistake. And, uh, you know, we can go back um, 
uh, decades all the all the way to 1943 when Roosevelt put in writing his commitment uh, to the idea that that uh, Taiwan was part of China. And so if you, you know, Truman reaffirmed that uh, and other presidents have too, uh, of course, uh, Nixon doing so in the, with the Shanghai communique. So, I mean, you know, this has been passed down through the generations, not to say that it's a simple issue, but uh, I do not want to see um, the U.S. Uh, get much more involved in this, uh, this uh, conflict because th this really is uh, becoming exceedingly dangerous. And, and what are the, you know, you may ask, well, what, why now? Why is this such a flashpoint now? Well, partly it's because of China's growing power. That is, you know, their, their military power, uh, you know, compared to 20 years ago, but certainly 10 years ago. I mean, the change is uh, transformational. And, um, is, you know, so there's no balance across the Taiwan Strait anymore. Not at all. Um, so China has the military capability. Do they have the will? That's another question. And I think what's happened is because of what's been going on in Hong Kong, uh, and I'm sure your listeners have been following that situation, but this, the Hong Kong situation has put a, a huge new pressure on the Taiwan situation. And I, I can explain that more if people are interested, but, you know, the basic, uh, the basics of it are that Hong Kong was a kind of model for, from Beijing's point of view, Hong Kong was the model for Taiwan. You know, the, this autonomous area would slowly, slowly, slowly reintegrate with the mainland. Well, if that process of integration is thrown into question or is thrown in the, in the waste bin effectively, as many in, in Hong Kong seem to want to do, well, what's the, what does that mean for Taiwan? Well, from Beijing's point of view, it means there's only one solution, that is to use force. So that's, I think, how we find ourselves in this very, very precarious position. Uh, and I don't, you know, a lot of Americans, of course, we, you know, we, we pride ourselves on having the best military in the world. You know, we've got a lot of fancy stuff. You can't get there from, from here, folks. I've looked at it very carefully, and there is no military solution to this from the U.S. point of view. It's you know, Taiwan is a mere 90 miles off the coast of the mainland. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, China can put a huge amount of firepower onto the island and exert its will. And there's really nothing we can do about it. In fact, actually, President Trump actually said that very clearly. Uh, it's recently come out that he even he understood uh, that this is a bridge too far for the United States. So anyway, I'm very concerned about this, uh, Aaron. But there is a very large U.S. military presence Biden continues to send warships to the South China Sea. Can you talk about what the U.S. is doing there and how China is responding? Right. Um, well, you know, both sides are, uh, you know, put flowing more and more forces into the area, uh, into both, you know, near Taiwan. And for China, of course, that's very easy. I mean, they, they have dozens of air bases and missile bases uh, right around Taiwan. And in fact, Lately, they've begun flying, uh, just in the last couple of years, they fly uh, bombers and uh, fighters regularly right around the whole island. Um, so, uh, you know, this has become kind of standard operating procedure and, and they're, uh, you know, some of the hawks in China have now begun to advocate for just, you know, buzzing the island regularly, you know, flying uh, fighters right over the island and, and daring the Taiwanese to shoot. Um, uh, you know, we do, you're right, we do have forward deployed forces there, but they are, um, you know, when you put the forces side by side, 
it's not a contest. It's uh, unfortunately, it's uh, I say unfortunately because I'm just saying there's no realistic balance there. It's uh, the forward deployed forces turn out to be um, quite vulnerable, uh, and um, you know I, I I think at a minimum my estimate as a as a military analyst is that uh, you know the first uh, two weeks to a month would would go very badly for the U.S. if we were to get involved in Taiwan. In my to my estimate, would hold out about two weeks. I think that at the most. And when it comes to China's actual military expenditures, how do they compare to the U.S.? Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating question, Aaron. And, um, you know, people have delved into this quite deeply for years, but I, there's been a change really in, in the way China defense analysts talk about it. I, we used to kind of reject the Chinese numbers and think that they were um, couldn't possibly be real because how could China be be making all this uh, um you know, how could they be coming out with all these ships and aircraft and all that on, on a budget, which is where they're only spending, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it's something on the order of 1.3%, 1, maybe 1.5%. Uh, so compare that to nearly, I think, 3% that we spend. Um, how, how do they do that on, you know, and, and but you can actually, if you look closely, I think uh, we've come to the conclusion that their numbers are real. They are telling us more or less the truth. I mean, it's not to say they don't have complications in their budget, just like, you know, we have, you know, for example, you know that in the U.S. defense budget doesn't doesn't actually uh, register that we that the Department of Energy pays a lot for the nuclear weapons budget, for example. Yeah. So and it failed its audit. The last time I went through an audit, it failed the audit. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and I fully believe that. I'm sure the Chinese would fail too. But the uh, w what's amazing is that they're, they're spending only, you know, 1.3, 1.4% of their GDP on military, um, uh, you know, on, on their military. And yet still, they're, uh, at least in the region, they're overmatching us uh, by, by a fair degree. And uh, that could be for a few reasons. Uh, one, I mean, they may just be, you know, more efficient. They certainly are more focused. I mean, we're spending, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, we spend, I think, uh, three, four billion dollars, I think, a month in Afghanistan. Well, that's, you know, money down the drain, of course. But uh, so they don't do that. <laughs> you know, they're more, you know, so so when you're when you have focused goals, you can definitely achieve more. But I mean, um, um Anyway, I think that that mainly explains it, but but they also are realizing, you know, some certain efficiencies um, that our system, unfortunately, um, when you look at pre procurement, uh, it's it's a pretty sad picture, uh, and we've made uh, I think some mistakes, and um, we're not, uh, you know, we're not using our our funds wise wisely. I mean, I, I think. Um, we could do much better. We make more rational choices from it, and and make our armed forces more defensive. You know, I feel like uh, right now a lot of effort is being put toward again more offensive weapons and so forth, and that to me is a big mistake as well. But we, to me, we have to control the spending. I mean, you know, to state the obvious, um, one reason that the uh, response to the pandemic has been so. Um, uh, well, has been poor in many respects is because we spend so much more on on defense than we do on public health. So that's, you know, it may sound odd coming from a defense analyst, but that's, uh, you know, to me, this is just completely obvious. Let me ask you about Xinjiang. 
the gray zone has done a lot of reporting showing that the claims that have become very predominant in the U.S. media about a genocide of the Uyghurs and millions in concentration camps, that these claims basically come from one source, this guy, Adrian Zentz, who is a right-wing evangelical. And I think the gray zone has conclusively shown that his research is fraudulent. So, But let me ask you what actually is going on there. There is some repression of the Uyghurs. I don't think that's in dispute. And there is obviously a big surveillance state in China. So how would you characterize the reality of what is happening in Xinjiang? And maybe give some of the background, too, about how there has been a crackdown by the Chinese government in response to uh, terrorist actions uh, by Uyghur separatists. Yeah, this is a real hot potato, as you know. Um, uh, somehow this issue has become you know, one of the focal points of U.S.-China relations, and to my estimate, that is that is a really big mistake. Um, I mean, China has always had a um, touch-and-go, let's say, sensitive, uh, let's say, sometimes dark, sometimes very dark relationship with the peoples on its flanks. You know, uh, if you travel in Vietnam, you'll quickly appreciate that Vietnamese don't like the Chinese very much. Um, and unquestionably, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Mongols or Tibetans or the people in Xinjiang have often uh, braced against the kind of, um, you know, the, the rule by the majority Han people. There's really nothing new here. I mean, this has been uh, going on for uh, centuries, really. Um, now, it has taken kind of a violent turn occasionally, and, and it really cuts both ways. Uh, during the Cultural Revolution, I think these areas suffered horribly. And that that would be, you know, to my estimate, that would be the worst kind of atrocities that I am aware of. Um, although I, I, I'm no expert on, on the Xinjiang, Tibet areas. Um, but, you know, after September 11th, uh, the war on terror and so forth, during that period, uh, there were some pretty uh, dark things going on. And by the way, uh, uh, quite a few, um, uh, Uyghurs from Xinjiang caught up in in Afghanistan, um, um, uh, even a part of as part of these uh, Al Qaeda elements. Uh, similarly, a lot of them being caught up uh, in Syria and and finding their way into ISIS. So, I mean, uh, unfortunately, a lot of them had been radicalized, and there were some really terrible attacks by Chinese standards. Um, that occurred, I think, in, uh, I want to say 2009 and 2014, very serious attacks. I mean, killing dozens of people. And China, they don't have, you know, people don't whip out AR-15s like they do here. But, um, but you know, even with a dagger, you know, killing um, dozens of people, which is is pretty shocking. Uh, there, I think, been some bombs as well. So anyway, uh, look, it's not to justify this uh, repression. I mean, undoubtedly, uh, China is way too hard on its a lot of its minority peoples. Um, and we would like it maybe to be otherwise. But uh, this um, this Professor Zenz, uh, I share Gray Zone's concerns about him. I think he's uh, um, you know, I, I think he has done some innovative research, I'll grant, and his methods, uh, some of them that for, for finding out information are quite good, but he, he and others seem to extrapolate way too far from his initial findings. For example, I, I've looked closely at a lot of Zen's work, and he 
you know, um, he, he established that, uh, you know, a lot of these facilities were set up and so forth. But if you look closely, he shows that the Chinese had, um, had uh, basically uh, created different, um, uh, would categorize the people incarcerated in, into certain groups or to be re-educated. And uh, he, ex he himself explains that the vast majority were in groups that were going to be held for, you know, three days or less. He says that in his own research. Well, I mean, how does that square with this, you know, putting millions of people in camps? I mean, and he also in his research, he explains, you know, what do they do there? Well, they sing patriotic songs and learn Chinese. I mean, um, you know, it, it, the, the leap that has occurred from, you know, a few satellite photos and some stories from expats to, to genocide, I think was totally inappropriate. And I think what you have here is a lot of people are looking at this with ideological lenses, looking for something to beat up China on, and they found it. I mean, I, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this relationship. It's it's bad out there, unquestionably. But you know, I don't think if you looked at uh, reservations for Native Americans in our country, um, you know, I don't I don't know that uh, the situation is any less bleak. Yeah, and, or the or the Gaza Strip, which Israel is occupying and with full U.S. support. Right. I, uh, There's a number of places around the world you can look where you see this kind of um, terrible repression uh, going on. And I, I I wouldn't say this is uh, at all the worst uh, of, of many repressions out there. Um, you know, I don't think this should be a major part of, of U.S.-China relations. And I, I, I really think we're probably making it worse for the Uyghurs and for the Tibetans and Mongols and other people in China's by, by putting them at the center of the relationship, we're putting them in the crosshairs. We're, we're, we're the Chinese respond by, um, by blocking down even harder, by isolating them even more. We should seek the opposite. We should be getting American companies into Xinjiang. We should be trying to engage fully with Xinjiang and get as many you know people on the ground there as we can and, and exchange and open it up as much as we can. That's what, that's, if, you, if you're worried about human rights in Xinjiang, uh, you should support engagement. So speaking of engagement, let me ask you about China and Russia. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, recently visited China. These two countries appear to be growing closer together in the face of a common U.S. antagonist and U.S. bellicosity. Biden has imposed sanctions on both China and Russia since coming to office, something that Trump did as well. What do you make of the Russia-China relationship? Mm. Right. Yes, the uh, the Russian prime minister was uh, foreign minister was just uh, visiting China uh, right after the Alaska visit to, and I think the uh, the optics from uh, Moscow and and uh, Beijing were that they wanted to show the world very clearly that you know Russia and China were going to uh, pull together, you know, in in the face of what they see as. Um, this kind of unwarranted uh, pressure from the U.S. and its allies. Um, now, where is this going? It's a good question. I, I'm writing a book on this, actually. So, uh, um, you know, I have a lot to say on that subject, but I'll just make it short by saying um, some people have called this a marriage of convenience. I definitely disagree with that. I, I think there's a lot more to it. Um, this is not just for, you know, for show. Uh, that they're a very sincere uh, set of beliefs that bring them together. Uh, there's also a lot of shared history. I mean, 
it's often pointed out that they almost went to war in, in 1969. I did my dissertation on that, so I'm very familiar with what happened there. Um, but that was, in my view, was really an anomaly, um, very unusual. And if you look across the whole sweep of China-Russia relations, you know, five centuries really of relations, um, uh, really there has never been a big war between them. A couple of skirmishes is true, uh, but um, by and large, it's been a very stable relationship. So I, I think, you know, a lot of people dismiss it, say, well, you know, they don't even have a big trading relationship, things like that. But uh, I think they're working on it. And um, there, a lot of this um, will come to fruition, probably irrespective of what the West does, honestly. I think I think there's just a lot of momentum here for, you know, since at least 1985, they've been sort of in an upward trajectory. Now, they both have resisted um, talking about a formal alliance, uh, and they seem to be holding to that. I was just looking over the words of uh, Wu Dahui, who's a um, who's a uh, professor at Tsinghua um, University, a very f- probably China's finest university in Beijing, and he he was uh, he's a Russia specialist, and he was just saying, no, 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 there, w- there will not be an alliance you know, that that would mean uh, kind of losing control and losing flexibility. And it would, and he said it would mean uh, entering into a confrontation, really. And what he means by that is with the U.S. And so there seems to be a realization in both Moscow and Beijing that this, you know, that, that, that even if people in Washington want a Cold War, that, that this is not what they want. And uh, that, that shows a lot of maturity and a lot of restraint. And I think that's, that's quite admirable. Uh, now, if we continue to push as hard as we can, for example, if we take the Quad, which is a kind of loose grouping of Australia, India, Japan, and the U.S., those four, you know, reasonably powerful countries acting in concert, you know, some have suggested, well, let's make it into a kind of uh, East Asian NATO or something, or Asia Pacific NATO. Uh, if, if we were to go down that route, which I think would be a big mistake, but if we were, then I think you could expect Russia and China to counter with a full-up alliance um, that could even come to include Iran and other countries that are kind of predisposed against the United States. So th- this, I think, would be a very, very foolish uh, move on our part to push too hard. We don't want to go back to the 1950s. <laughs> so. Getting into more about the U.S. and Russia, Tony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, just recently talked about how the U.S. is maintaining its troop presence along Russia's borders. And the way Biden has spoken about Russia, aside from renewing the New START Treaty in his first Foreign Policy Act in office, I think he's been pretty bellicose so far, although occasionally he talks about cooperation. But what do you make of Biden's policies towards Russia so far, the new sanctions, the uh, new announcing of military aid to Ukraine, sort of continuing what Trump did and stepping up arms supplies to Ukraine in its uh, fight against uh, Russian-backed separatists in the Donbass? What do you make of how Biden is approaching Russia so, so far? Well, you know, I... I um... I'm somewhat disturbed by the trading of insults that's gone on over the last week between the two presidents. Although I, I personally, I think it's probably over uh, overhyped, uh, you know, insignificance. Uh, so I, you know, to me, I do I do worry that the um, uh, I don't know about 
President Biden, but the people around him. I mean, he's certainly got a, a group of uh, and uh, of uh, hawks, I think, with respect to Russia. And they, you know, they unquestionably are feeding off the last several years of uh, all the uh, bitterness around Russiagate. Um, and I know you know more about that than anybody, I think, and, and have shown, I think, incredibly conclusively that it, you know, is all a bunch of uh, BS, if you'll forgive me. So malarkey. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Malarkey. Thank you. Uh, so. Uh, I think that's a charitable term. I really do. Uh, it um, anyway. That that whole episode has infected the um, the elites uh, in the Democratic Party with such a uh, venomous approach uh, to Russia that that it's. I think it's very worrisome. And you know, you actually hear in some of sort of Biden's reflections that he may realize that this has gotten to the point where. You know, it, well, yeah, it's funny kind of to talk about a stolen email and tweets and things like that. But gosh, you know, maybe we don't want to start a war over this. But as I read the Russian press uh, pretty much every night, I can tell you that, you know, uh, Russia is on edge. They really are. Uh, if you look, you know, I read their military press and they are convinced that, that, that you know, there are drones, uh, NATO and U.S. drones flying up and down the, uh, along the borders, uh, uh, in uh, all around, uh, through, uh, on the borders uh, along Ukraine, around Crimea. Uh, they're watching the force, uh, forces go in and out of the Baltics, which as you know, are within a, you know, a hundred miles of St. Petersburg. Um, they were very concerned about what would happen in Belarus. And then, uh, the buildup up North with the, um, in new tensions in the Arctic. We, now we have B-1 bombers flying into Norway and this is un, totally unprecedented. And, you know, Russia, uh, look, I, I lived in Russia. I speak Russian. I can tell you, I mean, Russians, it's, I think it's, it's a stereotype, but it's quite true is that they're quite paranoid. But I mean, if you look across their history, of course they're paranoid, <laughs> you know, by the way, Chinese quite paranoid too, but Russians are sort of, you know, way, way on the spectrum there. Do we want to be playing these games with the paranoid? Uh, I think it's a, it's very, very uh, disturbing and foolish. I mean, Russia's defense budget is something like, I think it's well under, well under 10% of uh, the NATO total defense budget. Uh, so this is the situation they find. Of course, they're hugging the Chinese very closely, unquestionably, but, you know, we, we need Russia's cooperation on so many issues, you know, not least, I, I mean, it, nobody really talks about this. We actually need Russia to, to help on climate change too. And not just because Russia is a big place where you can plant trees, but also because, of, you know, they're selling a huge amount of uh, fossil fuels and we need them to slowly, slowly kind of de-link their future from, from that. So that's going to be an incredibly arduous process. That's what we should be working on. Not, not building up as many, you know, build building up more and more nukes and, you know, uh, stimulating uh, dangerous situations all over the place. I mean, for, we're talking about from, from Syria to the Caucasus, to Ukraine, Moldova, to the Baltics, to the Arctic, we are a full up, you know, um, in a very dangerous space with Russia. The Ukraine situation uh, remains very hot. And uh, you can see that both sides are girding uh, for uh, possible, you know, uh, 
return to, to active military hostilities. And both sides are, are bringing in new forms of weaponry. I think the, the Ukrainians are starting to deploy a fair amount of uh, missiles and, and sort of heavier weapons. Uh, you know, this, this could drive, you know, you don't want to drive the bear into a corner, as, as many people have already said. And, and that's, I, I'm afraid that's where we're headed, Aaron. Look, to compare paranoia, you have Russia, which went through the Second World War, you know, which was devastating, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the disaster of the uh, shock therapy of the 1990s, where Russia saw massive um, just uh, degradation in its quality of life. And you compare that yeah, to that, the U.S. where I lived there, by the way. So I saw you were that there, you saw it. And, and, and you, you compare know, that's it. Why when people ask me, you know, well, what, what's your view on Russia? I say, well, they're doing pretty well. And everybody looks at me strange, doing well. Well, what are you talking about, Lyle? Well, I said, you know, I saw Russia when they were on their knees and it was really scary to behold. Right. And then you compare that to Democratic Party elites and literally some Russian Facebook memes are compared to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. That's the prevailing mentality of the, the Democratic Party establishment that these Russian social media ads can destroy our democracy. So, you know. Yeah, well, I think, you know, one thing I've observed lately, Aaron, and I don't want to, uh, uh, I, I think you're considerably younger than me, but I, I do think a younger generation of people, of Americans really, did not experience the Cold War at all. You know, um, we were talking about Stephen Cohen before we started the show, but I mean, he, he you know, his generation truly understood what Cold War meant and and what it was like to be on the brink of the apocalypse and the Cuban Missile Crisis. I didn't see that, but I, I did see the 1980s. That's when I grew up. And so, you know, I, I I know very much so that we do not want to return to those days, but we seem to be on a glide path for that, unfortunately. But I, I worry that, uh, just getting back to your question, I, you know, we seem to have these, uh, uh, how to put it, uh, younger uh, group of strategists coming up who have no uh, appreciation for the dangers of uh, militarized rivalry between uh, nuclear powers. And um, they, they seem to, you know, again, they blow out of proportion these, these issues, uh, you know, cybersecurity. It's not to say cybersecurity is, is uh, of course, you know, we need to take it seriously, but, you know, you know, every other day there's a front page article saying that the sky is falling, you know, because we we only spent, you know, 20 billion or 30 billion on this. And, you know, I mean, this is uh, and yet nobody can ever come up with the actual, you know, what did we actually, um, you know, what grand secret did we lose and, you know, whose identity was stolen? Uh, you know, and, it, you know, it's always a kind of theoretical uh, threat, which which is never actually uh, explained. And uh, I find this extremely objectionable. You know, I study military strategy and I can tell you uh, I've yet to see anybody killed by a cyber weapon. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not all hype, but a lot of it is hype. You know, I, I'm worrying about weapons, you know, real uh, uh, tactical nuclear weapons, anti-ship cruise missiles, those really kill people. It's, it, that has been shown. Well, let me ask you about that. Finally, the U.S. is planning on spending more than $100 billion on developing a new nuclear missile. Britain recently lifted its longstanding cap on nuclear warheads. What is the significance of these developments? Does it and what, how will Russia and China respond? Yeah, it's very troubling. You know, Aaron, you put your finger on it. It's 
we, uh, you know, uh, the Trump administration did enormous damage to global stability by tearing down all these uh, important uh, arms control agreements, um, you know, in, in particular the, by uh, uh, getting rid of the INF treaty. You know, that I think was a major mistake. Although, you know, I, I, I get it. There were some reasons and there was some, you know, idea of pressuring China um, and trying even to get Russia to, to pressure China to get into it. Uh, but it, the, the way they went about it was uh, very short-sighted. Uh, but they've gotten rid of so many arms control treaties over the years. And by the way, you know, we can, uh, it was uh, the George W. Bush administration that really kind of uh, set this uh, uh, underway with John Bolton, you know, at the helm saying, you know, getting rid of the uh, ABM treaty originally. I mean, by the way, a lot of Russia's uh, current um, nuclear modernization goes back to that moment, actually. They said, well, if they're out of that, then I guess we, you know, we we must build, a, you know, assuming that the U.S. has missile defenses. And look, you know, all around the spectrum in Russia, they are, uh, sure, they're they're willing to go with New START. They agreed with Biden to, to cap the weapons. But look how many new nuclear weapons programs they have. They have new ICBMs, new submarine-launched nuclear missiles. They are working on nuclear cruise missiles. Um, they never stopped working hard on tactical nuclear missiles. But the point is, you know, this isn't a new thing. They, you know, for, for 20 years, they've been convinced that uh, we're out to get them between NATO expansion and demolishing all these arms control treaties. Now, China, uh, it's going to be very hard to get China in because China is, you know, substantially uh, weaker on the nuclear front. Um, you know, this is a very a weird paradox where it might be better off if China builds up a bit and, and then they become self-confident enough to come into a treaty system. But that's what we should be aiming for is to build the trust essential enough so when the Chinese do feel ready that they will come into the treaty system. But right now, China is, uh, I hate to say it, but, you know, they are uh, preparing for the worst. Uh, that and, and believe me, they will have their nuclear deterrent will be very solid at that moment when the balloon goes up over Taiwan. So I, I think, though, you know, we need to pull back from the brink with China and we need to start building some good feeling that can be a basis for starting to talk about nuclear arms control. It's going to be very hard, though, to, to get there, especially since, we, we, you know, by pulling out of the Iran deal, by uh, being so... Um, truculent on the North Korea front, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be very hard. And, and I believe me in Moscow and Beijing, they're, they are planning as if, you know, the U S can only be deterred by, you know, only speaks the language of force, right? You've heard that phrase before. Well, that's how, how increasingly how we're viewed, uh, around the world, which is a, it's a very, uh, from the point of view of global stability, nuclear stability, but also just, you know, preventing, uh, wars, is a very, uh, very dark place to be in. So, this, uh, you know, the work is cut out for uh, diplomats, but also for uh, journalists like yourself, who I know uh, for a fact have been doing great work to, to try to at least to uh, pull, us, pull us back from the brink on these, in these difficult relationships. Lyle Goldstein, research professor and founding director of the China Maritime Studies Institute at the U.S. Naval War College. Thanks very much.